You're listening to an Mpavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. from Yerukala in northeast Arnhem Land and Evelyn Monongo for being here to celebrate Wanapati Unapingu's exhibition, his first solo exhibition, which opened last night in Talano Galleries. It's an extraordinary exhibition that you all must go and see. It's, it's remarkable. But for today, I really want to thank you guys for being here on a little chilly Melbourne morning, but you, you got the good weather yesterday. Um... And thank everyone for coming down to the M Pavilion today to talk about the sort of materiality and the concepts of conservation, cultural conservation, material conservation. My name's Kay McDonald. I'm the CEO of Agency Projects, um, an Aboriginal corporation that organisation that um, works with communities across the country to facilitate and support cultural maintenance programs led by Indigenous leaders. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that we're standing here. I'd like to acknowledge the Yongal, the traditional owners of Miwatch country in northeast Arnhem Land where Wanapati David and Evelyn have come from. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the patterns and designs that we'll talk about today that are in these paintings that represent that, those sacred places, those GPS coordinates written in patterns and designs called Minchi, the, the cross hatching. This your painting, David? Yeah. Beautiful. Um, just a quick, quick introduction. So, Agency Projects is um, facilitating a series of talks which started yesterday here at the M Pavilion, um, again today, with another talk following this afterwards. Um, Untold is a series of ongoing talks presented by Agency that invites First Nations people to come together to talk and listen and to share their in, intangible capital, knowledge, experience, histories, culture, and ideas. Um, we really love working with Empavian, so before I forget, just thanking the whole team um, and, this, and the architects for this extraordinary structure, which is fantastic. 
Wanapati is a Yongo artist who comes from a pedigree of very knowledgeable, celebrated line of um, great artists from the Gumach clan. Um, Wanapati is familiar with the notion of harvesting barks, as is David. Ochres, gapan, which is the white clay, these materials that we see before us. But again, going back to this extraordinary solo exhibition at Talano, is Wanapati is also moving into other materials, which we'll touch on later. Found materials, which are considered to be an extension of the land. Um, here with us, we also have David Wickens. David is the coordinator at Bukulangai Muka, which is the art centre in Nirakala in northeast Arnhem Land, where these guys come from. There's some many familiar faces in the crowd that have been there. It is truly paradise up in northeast Arnhem Land. Um, and we're also joined by Eleanor from Care of Studios, who will join us in the circle a little bit later, who um, runs a conservation company here in Melbourne, works a lot with communities spanning across the country from the Kimberley through Arnhem Land, has done workshops in Nirukala, is familiar with bark. But I guess what we want to explore is the sort of differences between Eleanor has uh, graduated from the Grimwade Centre at Melbourne University, Centre of, of Conservation, some of you may know about it. But kind of in the short time that we have today to sort of unpack those actions of conservation. What does that mean? What are we, what are we exploring? David's song that we just heard is an act of conservation. David, do you want to tell us a little bit about that song? Kurta. The Kurta came from the El Mari country. Start from there. And we flew over to my my a station, name of Brain Brain. And he burned all all over the like he burned the crocodile, one arm, he burned the what do you call the the door. Door means the um lot of lot of lot of like jungle, you know? The door means all jungle. Burn that one. And also he burned that person over there. And also he burned this one there. And fire is still over there. And the creek. This animal he went to the water, crossed the water, he burned in the fire and on the water. With the hot, hot fire. That's why our old people told us the story about Bang Bang. So these, these patterns, this diamond, the minchi that you're drawing there is, is significant to your clan. This is your, this is your symbol, the, the, the crocodile, the baru and the bandicoot are your totems. And your song speaks to these patterns directly and speaks to these rivers in this country, country directly. Yes. So your painting that you do with the brush made out of human hair, which we can see down here and we'll touch on later, is utilising these ochres which come from the land and those patterns and designs have no separation between the song that you just sang. Correct? The song, the bungal, the dance, the, the patterns and the designs are all part of that preservation, are all part of that notion of conservation that we're talking about. So we 
touch on the materiality, but these dances, these song lines that you're singing and you're sharing are part of the patterns and the designs. They don't go one without the other. Mm. Um, you touched on the forest, you touched on the jungle. We, Arnhem Land is a huge area of ongoing stringy bark forest. Gareka is the Yongo word for this tree. It's Eucalyptus tetradonta stringy bark, which is is uh, a very important tree, mm. a tree that belongs to the Marukolo clan. Yes. A tree that has its own song lines and its own patterns and designs related to it. But it is also a tree that is extremely resourceful, used still, by the Yongo. Still got the power for that, song for the Marukolo mark. That's more than just the canvas which you harvest from the tree. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the harvesting approach, David? How we cut the bark. We go in the bush or with the vehicle, stop in the car, I mean road, then walk, and we to see the barks, straight, straight, straight ones, not penny ones, only straight barks. Before we go over to bark cutting, not dry season, only wet seasons. When we cut the tree, they also the bark will just open the tree. Easy to open, you know. You mind if I hand this around? Then? No, no. If you go to on dry season, you cut him. You can't come open that bark. If you go on wet season, yeah, you can cut it, then it's easy to go out, you know. Then and we cut it, we go and make the fire and put it in the fire, make it straight. And after that, we bend it down into the floor, then put it under the hard stuff like that, like um, rock or something to make it straight like this one here. And you're ready to stay straight up, then we're ready to clean the white stuff out, make it straight, smooth, with knife or sandpaper, then ready to paint. Mm. And easy to clean the old stuff from out here and easy for sale. You know? <laughs> There's a nice painting there. Yeah. <laughs> um, thanks, David. I, I think some context around that as well is that when David and Wanapati are driving around in the troop carrier in the forest of the Gareka, vast Gareka forests of northeast Arnhem Land, they're looking at those trees and trying to find that particular one to harvest. It's not like you can just walk up to the first one. You're looking for the straight tree, the straight darupa. You're looking for something that doesn't have knots and twists. And you're looking for an area that might be more sand area so it's easier to strip that off the tree. So ultimately, you're traveling through these forests, which is the largest art supply store in the world for you guys. It's um, effectively, if you have an axe, or not even an axe, if you have 
the desire and the authority and the purpose to enter those forests and harvest this bark, gather these rocks which are found on the ground, create a brush made out of human hair, nothing costs anything, and you're ready to paint these designs, these patterns onto this bark. So originally it was, you used the sap from a native orchid, is that right? So the sap from that orchid was the binding agent that held all the patterns and designs together, correct? And so now the only foreign agent, just because of the demand, sheer demand of these bark paintings and the work is PVA wood glue is the only foreign agent. Um, Dave, can I throw it at you? There is a, a great philosophy of Bukulange Moka that has been held with the uh, founders of that art centre, but beyond the founders of that art centre is um, a philosophy that exists around this bark painting. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Good afternoon, everyone. Yeah, as Kate said, my name's David Wickens. I'm the, one of the coordinators at Bukulange Molka. They're located on the most northeastern tip of the Northern Territory, just to, to get your mind in that atmosphere. Uh, established in 1975 um, and run by the community and owned by the artists. So these guys are my bosses. Uh, we have a very strong committee and they always have. And the, the founders of the art centre were, when they were you know, building the idea of this art centre, which was actually uh, placed in the original Mission Hospital, uh, and there was a maternity wing, and still is the maternity wing in the, in the art centre, where literally artists were born, and I've met them, and some of our artists were midwives in that place, so it's quite an, an incredible building if you ever get the chance to come up. But when they were establishing the art centre, they made a statement uh, a powerful statement and, and Jung are very outspoken and, and great with uh, instating law and this law stated that if you're going to paint the land you have to use the land and so right then they set a law for their members to say we don't want you to go to the shop and buy this Napigi white fella manufactured stuff from overseas we don't understand what that is this is our material we want you to keep painting your designs on the material that is from the land. Now for many, many, many years, and it's still an ongoing practice that all these artists know that because of their forefathers and their ancestors that they are attached to painting with these materials and this surface. And stick on with that one, yeah. Staying strong to their law. And that's part of my responsibility as well is to sometimes remind people that that's the law that was given to us as art centre coordinators by their forefathers. Now, over the years, and Bukul is quite famous for, you know, big exhibitions and, and big artists, and many people would have went to the Bark Ladies last year and seen some things that didn't, didn't look like they came from the land, like bright pink toner, uh, bright pink paint, and questioned, what, what, where does that come from in that conversation? How does that from the land? And it, and it was during the late 90s, early 2000s, that one artist, who is a self-confessed, very cheeky, yet powerful and, you know, has a lot of authority, his name is Gunbi Gunanbar, started to think and, and twist the interpretation of that statement, if you're going to paint the land, you have to use the land. He seeked or found, in particular, an old water tank, which was close to his homeland in Gangan, and started dis dismantling it and using an angle grinder to cut his sacred designs into that material. 
and then bringing it to the art centre and presenting it and saying, well, I found it on the land. Ha, gotcha, you know, and, and I think the coordinators, one of whom's probably just behind me, Andrew, would have, I guess, seen the quality of the work and the power and the, the opportunity for something quite diverse to happen and present it to the board and, you know, go through the right channels to find if this loophole would be able to be exploited and and it was and and so it continued and what it's created is a is sort of a whole another diversity of practice within the art center and Wanapati is a good example of that and and also Gunbi went on to foster and and really encourage younger artists to use their mind to see what's available on or within the land and use that in their practice so Wanapati working into old street signs which have no signs were harmed in the making of those works. They they fall onto the ground or they're found at the tip. Um, and you know we've got then there's works on paper which which really come from the printmaking studio, the yellow colour print space. So the printmaking studio is proofing prints and they're going to throw the paper away otherwise. But if that means we can paint paint with that paper. And then the pink the pink poles and the pink barks from Nongirinamarawili. Uh, came from the discarded print toner from our ink uh, from our laser printer which would otherwise be returned to the land because we don't have a recycling facility in, in northeast Arnhem land so we can use we're using these things that we would find or would be returned to the land um, yeah so it's really quite an incredible story and and part of what's it's one of the most I think exciting artistic movements in the world right now and it's quite rare that you have the opportunity to experience a movement like it has been coined the found movement and in the modern day everything's just contemporary art well up in northeast Arnhem land there is a movement uh, and the fact that we can all experience that whilst still celebrating bark painting and, and its you know growing popularity and also people experimenting with bark painting we've always got so much going on if I could share everything we we're doing you know I'd be here all day but yeah I think that's the gist of of that story I think a piece in particular that I um, always refer to with that story is the Goimbi Gunnambar work that was uh, shown and won the Western Australian Indigenous Art Awards, which was a piece of conveyor belt rubber from Rio Tinto mine. So Rio Tinto exists in northeast Arnhem Land mining since the 70s for bauxite for aluminium production. And at one point it was the largest conveyor belt in the southern hemisphere. I think that's been trumped by the Western Australian mines. But um, Rio Tinto would maintain this conveyor belt rubber and th discard it and throw it on the, you know, on, at the dump and Goinby got a piece of that. And I think what's really important, and it exists in these baking trays here of Wanapati's and at the exhibition as well, is he then carved his country into this piece of conveyor belt rubber. So he was repatriating that land that was taken away in a way that was shipped away from his country and mined by Rio Tinto and, and shipped off sh offshore is going to be then incised his patterns back into this conveyor belt rubber as one of the most remarkable pieces that really set that story, that story of found off on a, um, and, and gave that permission as Dave was talking about. So th these patterns here that Wanapati is putting down are the same designs and minches as David's bark painting over there. So in some ways you could argue that the vehicle of these patterns and designs 
as is in the song that David sang earlier, it doesn't really matter about the vehicle. What matters is this is still the celebration of those sacred places. This is still the important uh, GPS coordinations of these sacred rivers and floodplains. Um, Andrew, I said that I would promise not to bring you into this talk, but I sort of, I'd like to go back to, there was a moment, another moment at Bukulangemuka in when you were the coordinator there and um, bark was being harvested and there were some beautiful large barks that exist in the Melbourne University collection from Donald Thompson from the 30s that are extraordinary. Um, and there was a lot of bark painting going on and there was a trade of selling those bark paintings and getting recognised in the commercial market and the tourist trade. But there was a movement around 1996 where Andrew went out with many of the leaders at the time and harvested some of the biggest barks that have ever been harvested in that space. Do you, do you want to touch on that a little bit, Andrew? Sorry for throwing you in the mix. No, that's fine, Kate. Thank you. Um, the, the, the privileges uh, for me being associated with Eurocala still exist and uh, um, it's a joy to, to be down here with these people. But in those mid-90s, um, uh, the art centre was a space of high tradition as it is today, but uh, it didn't have to deal with the volume of of, uh, of art and sales and administration and that sort of thing uh, that's grown uh, because of the likes of uh, Stubbs, Cade and Dave and of course the artists. But um, so I had the time basically to go out with the people and, uh, and experience the, uh, the, the bush, the sclerophyll forests and, uh, and I enjoyed the physical activity of, of cutting bark. Um, and uh, I, I think one of the first paintings that was done for um, a, uh, which ended up to be a commission for, the, for that uh, gallery across the road there, um, was uh, one that I cut down and it was, uh, it was two and a half metres high. But I thought, well, okay, um, I've seen photographs uh, in books of the paintings that Donald Thompson collected uh, from the same people in the, um, in the uh, in the 40s, early 40s, and uh, and and they were massive paintings, and uh, they were wide, and uh, they that uh, they were basically all Minchi, all sacred clan design. There was nothing in these paintings that would break down the the the, the spiritual strength of these paintings, because a lot of the art that was being produced at Yurikala at that time always had a a figurative element to them, like uh, Nullawa's painting there of the, of the bandicoot, you know, where the sacred object is, is the minchi, is the fire, uh, but you've got a totemic species associated with that, and, uh, and quite often that was thought to break down the power of the paintings. But anyway, I thought, okay, uh, this, this large bark that was harvested, uh, I wanted to, uh, to cure. Uh, at the art centre and, and have somebody paint it uh, as, as, a, as, as a single piece. And uh, I had to sort of fight my uh, classificatory sisters off from taking it and cutting it up into smaller pieces, you know, uh, like this. And um, it ended up that um, uh, my uh, classificatory father, Jucha Jucha, painted this. And uh, that was the first of the big barks uh, of, of that era. But um, and then it went on, you know, and and that started uh, something of a 
of, of a not, not a competition, but you know, where people were excited to uh, to see this big bark painting, and uh, and other senior members of the uh, men of the community would uh, would paint this uh, the on these big bark paintings, and it was around the art centre or in the museum or under the house where uh, where I lived, where Cade lived, and where Dave's living now, and um, you know, uh, it ended up being a, a big uh, a big project, and uh, which ended up. Uh, exciting uh, another one um, uh, in Virginia for the Madayan project which Kate's uh, co-curating uh, uh, which is travelling America at the moment so there was another commission the following year but uh, you know the the sclerophyll forests are, are fantastic uh, uh, the stringy bark tree gadaic uh, eucalyptus tetradonta is Perhaps the most prolific uh, of the of the trees in these areas, and you know we'd quite often get an opinion from from outsiders saying, "Well, what about the trees? You know, are you killing the trees? Are they being totally ring barked?" And I say, "Yeah, they are, and to the extent of three metres, uh, the tree has no chance of survival whatsoever after that." But we've also been advised by. Uh, by uh, Whitefellow Science that there are far more trees of the same species which are decimated by annual bushfires and lightning strikes and that sort of thing. Not to mention the, uh, the, the, the large-scale um, mining which is happening there, which is uh, across country. It's not a hole in the ground, it's not underground, it's a vast swathes of, uh, of country. So there was no concern of... Uh, of, uh, of Taking advantage of the of the tree life to, to make these barks, um, I've got no idea where direction I'm going now, Kate. I've forgotten what good, the question good, was no, that you no, asked. But I mean, neither do I from the moment. <laughs> <laughs> not, not you, my conversation. But um, I, I guess I just wanted to acknowledge. I mean, yes, there's a fantastic collection that um, the Yongle produced in collaboration, or Andrew working as the coordinator at the time, that are in the NGV. And as Andrew touched on, there is a huge collection that happened, a commission that happened the year after, which now is um, part of the Kluge-Roo collection in Virginia, which is the largest Aboriginal, Australian Aboriginal art collection in North America, um, which has a curriculum attached to it through the University of Virginia and has been there for 25 years, and I don't think many people know about it. But I guess to, if I can try and join it all together, is many of us here might have barks in our house, we might have bought them, we might have been gifted them. We touched on the Donald Thompson collection which is from the 30s and I recently saw some of those works because we toured them, or we are touring them across America at the moment and one can imagine the, the, the conservation requirements and reporting that's done on a bark painting from 1932 that's travelling the US for four years is quite, it's quite a thick document. Um, and so we've, we've talked about some of the materials um, but there is this, you know, we must remember that David's painting down there is an act of generosity that he is giving to us and sharing with us that story and wanting us to be perhaps temporary custodians of this and take it to our houses and enjoy it. So these paintings are contemporary works that are there to be exchanged and, and share with a broader community and these bark paintings across at the NGV are in the same place. So I think one thing is there's a sort of myth around or an uncertainty of sort of standing back. Historically, people have looked at barks as being quite fragile and they must sit in a glass cabinet and white gloves. 
And Eleanor, this is where I'd like to bring you in because you've trained in that space through the Grimwade Centre and you now own a company that works, I assume, with a lot of barks, different private clients. I've had some of my barks fixed through your uh, company, which is great. Um, so it's sort of balancing those two sides, you know, and in an institution like across the road, there's a lot of conservation, there's a lot of documentation. And when, when I took this big document to Arnhem Land, to Jumbo Amarawili, who's one of the leaders of the Marapa people in northeast Arnhem Land, I said, there's a big document that's been produced by Melbourne Uni about the care of these barks that we want to take to America. Are you okay with us taking them to America? Jumbo sort of gave me that look like, I'm not going to read this document, Kate. <laughs> um, and he had some advice about maybe how to fix up the frayed edges, which I, you know, probably made the conservators roll and, you know, uh, freak out a little bit. But I think what was, in, what was interesting in that conversation with Jumbo is, again, it was about projecting and sending those patterns overseas. That's what's important. The care of that is really important. He wants those bark paintings to last for a long time and be used as an intergenerational tool to teach the next generation and future generations. But he was far more in, invested in the idea that these patterns would sing their way overseas and project overseas and share with new audiences, which would ultimately empower his community. So, but conservation is a really important thing. I mean, Eleanor, you've bought us a, a bark here, which isn't an old bark, um, but your tools, which we can see here, and this one in particular I'm very fond of, this seaweed from the southern shores of South Korea. Um, it, your approach is very different, but the two can coexist and share each other's knowledge back and forth. Do you, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you've got here and perhaps a little bit about your experience and approach with working with Bark? Of course. Um, so, yeah, I as Kate mentioned, run a conservation studio in Melbourne, but um, while I was studying and training in that, I had the great privilege to go up and spend some time at Yukala, um and learn about barks there and see one being harvested and, you know, a look at their sort of older pieces in the museum. Um, and, yeah, I think there's what you said is quite true across any form of conservation and cultural material conservation, which is what we mainly do in a, taught in like a Western tradition, but really um, making the artist's vision and the artist's hand sort of readable and making sure that um, those marks and that story is still presentable and the you know, somebody seeing it could pick up that, that mark making and that story. So, I mean, Bach, yeah, like you said, some people are a bit scared of it um, but I think that perception is changing a lot and I know in some galleries and museums there's been a you know back and forth debate whether they're objects whether they're paintings whether they're sculptural you know they don't behave like a canvas painting but I think that's no reason to be scared of them you know they you just need to understand how how this structure will change and move in responses to humidity light, temperature, and, you know, understand that if, you know, so this bark in particular, there's a few cracks running through it, but, you know, these were curved, fully curved pieces at one point, and, you know, that curing process to flatten them is, does a great job, and, you know, once the bark is 
is held in its aluminium frame and, you know, there's been a, a lot of different ways to try to keep them straight over the year. But I think, you know, understanding that they are living, breathing pieces of, of wood with this, you know, amazing natural ochre paint on it with, yes, a, you know, there's a binder there to keep it sort of as a coherent layer and keep the design strong. But, you know, as, as the materials, they're quite different to a you know, a canvas painting. So we just need to, as conservators and as um, custodians, if, you know, people have blocks in their home, just understand that, that they behave a little differently. But there's nothing really to be scared of. I mean, as you mentioned, we have this um, seaweed here which produces a, a glue which is really matte, which is really great in terms of keeping that surface sort of nice and matte. And, you know, as you can see in these paints being made up, by Wanapati and David that, you know, once they dry, they, they really retain that like ochre matteness. And so that's something we need to be cognizant of when we're, you know, doing any consolidation or any sort of like stabilization of anything that's moving. Um, but yeah, I think understanding how they're made, where they come from and, you know, where they're gonna go into the future is really important for us as conservators. Yeah, I think, um Brawa Munungo, who works at the Art Centre or ha had for many years as the sort of lead conservator, sort of, Dave, you might jump in on this a little bit, but he, he, he's quite extraordinary in playing in both spaces. You know, like, as you look at Wanapati creating these layers and different layers that ends up, like Dr Marika's work here or David's work over there, multiple layers of different ochres on top of each other. And ensuring that the consistency of the glue and those binding agents is there to ensure that all those layers remain on top of each other and stay. But um, uh, I don't know why I was bringing you into that again, Dave, but... Um, well, I'm very passionate about Bach's and, and their place in people's you. collections. And, um, you know, I get that question all the time about, you know, is this... This is Bach. Oh, my God. You know, is it going to be all right? Is it going to move? Is it going to be a crack in it? Um, you know, because people are so used to sort of buying a canvas or an oil painting or, or maybe a street sign now, um, which is obviously very stable, you know. And, and, you know, people's perception of an artwork being trapped in this rectangular or perfectly Roman square form, uh, you know, is something that we really like to break and, and expose and say, you know what, like this piece of bark is from this country you know you have a piece of the land in your house like how spectacular is that like it's really nice to celebrate the form that is created from a bark painting and whilst people have this perception that it might be a fragile substance this is the protective layer on a stringy bark tree that is ravaged by fire every year it's actually an incredibly tough material if you try and break this stuff apart whilst it can hairline crack quickly uh, you know it, like sometimes easily if it's not cured properly or if it's allowed to curl up and then someone tries to put some weight on it to flatten it out there is processes that you need to know how to make them flat and you know we run a fairly uh you know anarchy conservation studio you know we use a blowtorch on the back of the barks to come in to reset a bendy bark. It is possible and conservation, you know, is pretty scared of that approach. You know, like, I don't know many conservations in downstairs of the NGV with a blowtorch burning the back of these barks, but it does work, you know. 
And it's understanding, I think, the, the makeup of a bark. You know, the, internally within the bark is, is saps and resins. And, and once you sort of lose the fear, you reinstitute, like re-warm them up and then reset it into a flat form. You know, and it, it is a natural object, you know. It's not manufactured in a, in a factory. It's nice to have some of these things in our life that aren't, you know, so made of plastic and... And that's something that I usually get stuck into and probably scare people off buying the painting. But, you know, it just helps for people to understand that it's not a fragile substance and that it is made using all natural things. And, and you know, sometimes the cracks just are exposing their natural beauty. <laughs> oh, I, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. It's like what you said, Eleanor, is are they an object, are they actually a 3D thing? You know, the back of a bark is beautiful. There was an exhibition in the, in the 60s in Texas that when they received the barks, they had no idea how to hang these things. And they didn't know whether the back was just as important as the front. So they suspended them in the middle of the room and you could walk around them. And that, you know, it's an extraordinary thing. I mean, you, many of you just touched that bark. It's got weight. It's a, it has, it absorbs moisture, it changes, it moves on your wall. I mean, the beauty of bark, we've, we've got a lot of barks, is you don't ever have to walk around the house and straighten it up because it wasn't straight in the first place. Um, but they are, they're these extraordinary, remarkable objects and they vary so much. Like earlier saying that driving around in that troop carrier to find the piece that you're going to harvest is so important. It's a part of the process of the painting. Um, Eleanor, in your experience, through university and now in your practice, is, has bark really, I mean, has it surprised you in its resilience and the way that you work with it? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think, you know, there's a very big difference between something coming into like the conservation studio and being conserved on site. And anytime there's an artist working with their own material, they're going to throw it around a lot more than, than we would, <laughs> just because, you know, we don't want to take anything too far. Um, but it's the more you work with the material, the more you understand it. So I think being able to have more exposure to it and, and the different ways that it can present um, after it's been in somebody's house for a period of time and how different um, producers sort of work with their ochre and work with the bark, um, it's really, it's, yeah, it's got a lot of personality, I would say. And, you know, there's, there's definitely characteristic things that you can look out for. I think that... Um, you know, like I said, that um, final matte white layer is often, um, you know, has a lot of movement with it, um, which is not necessarily a, a negative thing. I think that that matteness is something that's, you know, really important for that final look. So, you know, making sure that um, there's enough sort of glue in there to keep it in but then you know that's a really tricky balance and you know every artist has a different approach to how they like their paint to look so you know I don't think there's any real positives or negatives there but you know coming at it from later in its lifetime just seeing how things change over time yeah and I think it's important to understand that any artwork you own needs attention and needs you know to be observed at times when things change and, and so much that's another message that I share with people is like don't hang it in the laundry or the kitchen or maybe the toilet uh, which you probably wouldn't do with too many other artworks and just keep your eye on it you know if you see something change then give us a call or you know speak to a conservator and that can happen with your oil painting 
that can happen with manufactured things. It probably can't happen with street signs, which is which is good. And uh, <laughs> but yeah, this thanks thanks to Gunby, you know. I'm one of you know, we, this amazing exhibition of yours up the road, which is extraordinary. But you're back on the bark here. You you still work between the two mediums, the street sign and the bark paintings. You enjoy being back on the bark painting? Yes. Yeah. It's not quite as noisy. <laughs> it's a lot more peaceful. Um, so with the bark painting, do you want to just... You, you, there's a few items here that you've been working with. You, it's all of those bark paintings, except for when uh, Dave was talking about the ink toner and things like that, but all of the bark paintings are produced out of these four colours. That's right, isn't it, Wanafati? Red, yellow, black, yellow color, and white. So these, I mean these rocks, Kunda, which is the Yongomata, you know, they've been exposed to the elements for thousands of years. They're very solid pigments and their white clay is, uh, it's almost like a porcelain really. It's like, it's called gapan, it's like a chalk. Kaolin, yeah. Um, that goes on, often goes on sort of almost transparent when you're putting it on, but then as it dries, it, it becomes opaque. Not so much in what Wanapati's doing there, but... Um, and the brush is made out, as David made one before, is made out of human hair. Thanks, Dave. Uh, and it's actually my hair, too. It's your hair. <laughs> <laughs> You're looking sharp after that haircut. Thanks. Thanks to Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> um, I might take the moment, you know, we... <laughs> We'd welcome people to come and have a look at some of these things after the talk and even chat with these guys as they continue. But has anyone got any questions that they want to really drill into or something that we haven't touched on? You might have a bark of your own at home. You might um, be considering buying David's bark, which is down there. Um, does anyone have anything to ask? Yeah. When, when, can you hear me? When we were in uh, East Arnhem Land a couple of years ago, we looked at lots and lots of rock paintings, of course, and we were told that the white clay paint doesn't last as long as the ochre paint. Is that correct? I mean, I'm probably talking about hundreds of years here. Yeah, I mean, in the context of rock art paintings, and I actually used to live in Western Arnhem Land where uh, there is a very dense collection of rock art paintings on Inilak Hill and right up into Western and Central Arnhem Land. There is a few rock paintings in the east, but not nowhere near as many. Look, I mean, the, the mediums used to fix uh, natural pigments before the introduction of this, you know, what we call PVA glue, but which is really just an acrylic medium. So it's, it's essentially fixing the natural pigment. Uh, wasn't wasn't available at that time, but there's lots of different mediums that were used. Uh, the main one, I only know the Bining Yako for it, which was uh, Dalamandi. It's the, an orchid. 
this beautiful flower and, and you'd squeeze the juice out and use that as a fixative, as well as I've heard stories about animal fat and blood to use on the rock art. But the white, yeah, it doesn't stain the rock so much as the, as the red would have, and that's why there's less of it. Mind you, if you get really into the deeper caverns and caves, there's still a lot of white there, and that's often because of layering and layering, and some of those paintings are only a couple of hundred years old, you know, in certain places, or been even, I can't remember the last, it, was, it wasn't that long ago, it would have been 10 years ago that, or maybe a little bit longer, that old Bade El Najameric painted a kangaroo that's still there and gets touched up by his kids up in Gaborwanamu. But yeah, it's the white is definitely more reactive to water. And, and that, that's the thing, that's another thing about bark painting is often people say, well, what happens if it gets wet? And, and the, the answer is don't touch it. it. You will see the white clay go transparent and you'll probably freak out. But if you leave it, it will dry bright white again. It's like magic. And that is one of the hardest, as an, I, I'm an artist and a painter myself, I don't use natural pigments, but every now and then I have to, you know, maybe, because the Art Centre is a wild 300, we've got th more than 300 artists. We, we buy, I think last year was more than 9,000 pieces of work. It's very difficult to stop. And, and the barks are hard, you have to lean them against each other. So often they'll get scratched. And sometimes I just have to make a little touch, you know. Just, or we, if we haven't got a conservator around to help to do that little line. And as a, an artist who works with acrylic most of the time, working with Gupan, the white clay is one of the hardest mediums because it goes on transparent. You don't know what is going to happen. And often it's quite watery. So, yeah, the main thing is if it gets wet, don't try and dry it because then it will smudge. Or if there's a big, sweaty, heavy removalist about to pick up your ladder kitsch, Make sure he's dry, you know, because we've lost a few. <laughs> Happens though, doesn't it? It does happen. Oh, what's this big log? <laughs> yeah, okay. And then it slides down the front of him, and that. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's such a fine balance of getting enough of the medium in with the white clay in particular to have that beautiful soft matte finish that we, you know, that the artists are well known for, and 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 having it fixed enough to, to stay, st stay firm. And it, it's a, it, is a, it is a bit of a battle for us coordinators who we, we've all experienced just reminding people to maybe a little bit more glue, please, you know. But you've got to remember you can't just go to the shop and get glue or you, maybe you've run out of money and the art centre provides a lot of those materials or you live in the homeland and you run out of glue and I'm just like, well, stop painting. <laughs> but, you know, people are hungry, you know. That's part of the whole role of the Art Centre, is to support the economics of, of these communities. And I was speaking yesterday about the Homelands Movement, and I just want to reiterate how important and how much of a national treasure the Homelands of North East Arnhem Land are, and that anyone that can do anything to support Homelands, and, and Cade would be the person to speak to about, speak to about that avenue. And, and, you know, buying art from Bukalange is one way to support the Homelands. But whilst the world keeps going faster and faster and getting bigger and bigger. People living on their homeland and practicing their ceremonies and painting these paintings and looking after country by doing seasonal burning and you know hunting the right animals at the right time and, and understanding the landscape is one of yeah the nations. We should really be treasuring that. You know. And my chairman's 
all my board members, they're most of them are from the homelands. And that, that's always, every chair, every committee meeting is always, we need to support the homelands. And we're like, yeah, okay, well, we'll keep going what we're doing, but yeah, there's always other ways to support. Yeah, and these homelands are the studios. You know, the artists aren't working at Buku. Dave doesn't know what's coming in on Monday or any day of the week. Artists are harvesting at the right time of the year and bringing them in. The act, the Homelands movement in itself is a, you know, one of the greatest tools of cultural conservation is living out on country, practicing these patterns, living these patterns, um, which then enables you to paint these patterns. So um, I'll throw it out again to anyone else, but Diane. Uh, this is a problem that I had with wood, but not a bark. I bought a couple of on Yolanda's York Yorks and they'd been stored up in the rafters in Darwin for a few months and they were infested with um, borer. And one of them we never actually got because he didn't want to repair it. And the other one's fine now, but it, it's another problem. Have you encountered that? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think any wooden object, even, you know, gilt frames um, in a gallery, anything that is wooden can be vulnerable to borer um, and we see it a lot but I guess there's two sort of ways that you can go about treating that um, one is to freeze it um, but if there's any natural resin on it or any pre-existing cracks that can be a bit problematic to sort of a um, make the the resin quite brittle and again if there's any pigment paint on it, you know, understanding what that paint is made of is really important um, and any pre-existing cracks can, you know, shrink and contract as well. So there's another method which is like an oxy uh, oxygen deprivation called anoxia. Um, so basically sealing up the object with some oxygen scavengers for a few months um, and that slowly, gently suffocates <laughs> any bugs that are in there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a problem in a lot of museums and places, mould, borers, wood, you know, it's a living thing. So. Yeah, and I mean, that's a treatment method that we use at the Art Centre. We freeze all of our fibre in particular and our wood carvings before, you know, before they go on the floor to be sold. Now that, that works to begin with, but it depends how long. Some we've, I've recently sold something from probably Andrew's, you know, there's always something at the Art Centre for everyone. Sometimes it takes 15 years for it to move, so you know you can still experience. And then, you know, nature's a funny thing, like uh, there can be a bug laying dormant in there for three years and then a slight weather change and boom, shoots out. And so, yeah, I mean, it is just part of owning these natural objects and understanding that beauty. And I mean, Owen's work is spectacular and I'm sure they're beautiful still. And, uh, you know, uh, my experience with our Renegade studio is that we can fix just about anything and try and bring it back to its former self, you know, so... And conservators are good at doing that as well, yeah. Um, I noticed uh, the artists passing the bark between them and uh, contributing to each other. I was just wondering if individual authorship is a concern or a consideration in making the art. Dave, you happy for me to jump in there? I, um, it's it's not uncommon for um, this environment to be occurring in the in the homelands. And if you take an example of Garawan Wanambi and Manini Gumana, husband and wife, who are two very celebrated artists um, from from Gangan in northeast Arnhem Land, 
and they'll bring their work in from Gun Gun, which is a four and a half hour drive, and they're working. You can tell that they had a color palette sitting in the middle of them and they might mix a bit of white into the red and create these amazing hues of pink. But each person's painting their own patterns and designs that are relevant to their clan or to their country. Um, but there's that shared moment of, it's quite beautiful really, this shared moment of sharing the ochres, sharing the, the, the mix of those whites or creating greens out of mixing the reds and the blacks and things. There's also a history of um, families working together on a particular painting. Um, some of you may know the, the church panels, um, which is a, two very famous paintings, uh, arguably some of the most important paintings in Australian history that live in Yerkala, and they are two panels that represent the Yiritja and Dua, the two moieties that exist in northeast Arnhem Land. So it, it encompasses the whole story of that area. Um, and they were a collaboration between the different clan groups, which at the time was very uncommon, but in the end became a very powerful tool, which set the foundation for the Bark Petitions, which was the first document that went to the Commonwealth for land rights, which hangs at Parliament House. Um, I think... Dave, you might, or, or Andrew, I think most of the time artists will work on their own bark. Um, there is a, it is a tool of, of exchange and intergenerational learning, so it wouldn't be uncommon to have your daughter work on that bark with you. Andrew referred to his um, father earlier, Jutta Jutta, whose work hangs over here. Now, Jutta Jutta was the husband of Nongana Marawili, who's a very famous artist. Many of you would know her work. And she worked on those paintings. And their daughters, Maniela Munungu and Urukiwana Munungu, who are also equally as celebrated as artists, learnt how to paint. Um, and if you look at a particular work by him in the museum or in the gallery from 1996, I think you can, you can kind of see the four different hands that have come together on that work to paint a particular design that Jutta Jutta authorised and encouraged his daughters to learn and understand that Minty and those patterns because it is their cultural obligation to carry that onward. So I think most of the time it's individuals, but it's not a little bit of sharing, a little bit of collaboration. I don't know if collaboration is the right yeah, word. Look, I think in, in, in complete transparency, I think the, the Jung way and the Jung law of thinking is that you know, authorship of a work is attributed to the artist who places their name and has the correct authority to lay the bones of the design down and direct the people in his family to help with this, you know, in those really large bark paintings in particular with the huge task of laying down the, the fine design. And those people who are painting that must be, you know, initiated or have the knowledge as well. Although it's quite often that husband and wife will work on a painting together. There's definitely... Lots of artists who work completely on their own, like especially the the old ladies. And I say that with the you know, I always get in trouble for saying old ladies anywhere else except for in Northeast Arnhem Land because that's like an honourable thing to call someone. But all of our old ladies, many of whom have passed recently, bless their souls, uh, they are the you know the solo author of those paintings, and that because they're not painting sacred design as well, so it is their hand. But it's quite normal and I'm really happy to be transparent to say that it is quite normal for a family or a husband and wife to work together on a series of works. And I think that's something that we, as Napigi in our system, need to, to celebrate, that there is a communal sense to that. But the, it, 
the artist who's chosen to put their name for it or has the right authority, you know, that is his work. Um, yeah, but there's a lot of artists who, you know, particularly in this day, and partly because of that, we understand that notion, that, that point of view from everyone else in the world that, it, you know, we value that one artist for their vision and their hand, and if it has been touched by someone else, then, you know, is that really their work? Well, that's something that we maybe need to flip in our minds to, to work more like you, to work together in harmony. I think also the you know the patterns here that David's painting that that Minty of the Gumach clan, um, he ha that's been passed to him by generations before and will be passed on generations after. It's not something that he owns. He can attribute his own artistic qualities to that, but the literature on that bark is something that has been around for thousands of years and will be carried on by his children and others in that clan. But Wanapati's called it a day. Um, and Got to back. And he's the boss. Too much. <laughs> so uh, I really, I think that I think the message, you know, barks are a living organism. They're part of country, and we've been gifted this opportunity to have those in our houses and to celebrate them. And if a crack appears, that crack is part of it. And it's the beauty of Arnhem Land, sort of sharing its its. It's uh, organic materials, it's patterns and designs and, and remembering that those things have dance, they have song attributed to them. So what's hanging in your house is actually far greater than what's on the surface. It means so much. And to have a piece of Arnhem Land in your... you acting as a temporary custodian of that is a real privilege. And so I'd really like to thank uh, David and Wanapati and Evelyn, wherever you are, but I really thank the artists for being here, for coming down, uh, for sharing some paintings with us. Um, Eleanor, for coming along, thank you so much. We, honestly, if you want, you can come forward and touch the clay and, and grind some of the ochres if you want. Have a look at these things. Um, you can try painting. David's welcoming. <laughs> We're collaborating here, Felicity. <laughs> So, and, and thanks, David, uh, for coming down as well, um, and Andrew for jumping in. Thank you, everyone. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.